Support for Triloquy comes from Apple Music Classical, an app designed for the nuances of classical music. Listeners can search for the exact recording they want to hear and experience high-res lossless audio up to 192 kilohertz at 24-bit, along with thousands of recordings in spatial audio. Apple Music Classical is included with select Apple Music subscriptions and available now in the App Store. Welcome back to Triloquy, Opus 203. Thank you so much for continuing to support the show and for being a loyal listener. I couldn't do this without you. Huge shout out to Apple Music Classical for their support and to each and every one of you for being here. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the show of Triloquy or to contribute to the cause, go over to our website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Greetings from Dallas. I'm recording this a little late, sorry for the delay, because I'm here in Texas managing my final set of earshot readings for the season. Shout out to the American Composers Orchestra and to all of my colleagues over there. Can't wait to spotlight and uplift four more emerging, living, breathing composers today. You can learn more about the work that I do with them at AmericanComposers.org. My name is Loki, the podcaster formerly known as Garrett McQueen. I'll speak a little bit more to my name change probably next week because there are a few other things that I want to speak to today. In addition to offering this week's conversation, I had a, the great pleasure of dialoguing with cellist Abel Seloshue a few weeks back. So I'm excited to share that conversation with y'all. It was a really great one. I'm also going to speak to some recent orchestra data that people have been talking about. So that's coming up in the Triloquy, but since we're fresh off of Juneteenth, I wanted to make a little room for it before we got going today. So there are many things that I can say about the importance of Juneteenth. I hope you had a great Juneteenth, by the way, uh, but I wanted to share with you today uh, what Juneteenth can be when it comes to classical music, how we can perpetuate a status quo or how we can liberate ourselves from it. Y'all have heard me talk about decolonizing classical music a lot on this show. I think words like decolonize sort of lose their power, unfortunately, the more that they're used because the actual spirit behind that mission is more radical than we tend to think of it being. When we talk about decolonization, we're talking about addressing the levels to which our thinking and our actions around certain subject or art forms, in this case, have been influenced by colonialism. And in our case, that's Western European colonialism. On uh, Juneteenth, you see a lot of black people wearing African aesthetic clothing or just really uh, black <laughs> clothing, Afro-American attire, uh, because everyone is dipping a toe into that idea of decolonization by doing so. If you know how I dress, you know, I try really hard to present a decolonized look just about every day. And the more that we celebrate Juneteenth and understand its actual purpose, I think the closer we can get to a more decolonized mode of thinking year round. So when it comes to arts institutions and radio stations that celebrate Juneteenth, I feel like a lot of folks, <laughs> I hate to say it, are getting it wrong or at least not getting it quite right. Let's think about uh, the circumstances of composers like William Grant Still and Florence Price, the two heavy hitters when we're talking about black classical music, right? 
their music is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to say that first. Still's Afro-American Symphony is a staple, in my opinion. That is a seminal piece of American classical music, not just Black, but American classical music. And Florence Price's music speaks for itself, especially her piano music. And her story is is quite uh, 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 just incredible as well. This music is a lot of things. But what it isn't, in my opinion, is an example of a decolonized way of presenting Black musical aesthetics through this classical art form, through this classical medium. Both Still and Price fully understood that their job was to fit within the more colonized frameworks of music the best that they could while infusing Blackness within it. This was just a mode of survival. It's what they had to do to exist as composers in the early 20th century. This was and is important work that they were doing because, again, it's quite important that we have these stories and, and this representation uh, in, in the orchestral uh, and chamber music you know, genres. But it's not quite the same as digging into African aesthetics and liberated ideas through music. William Grant still did write a couple of really cool works that speak directly to Africanness from that Afro-American um, perspective. Namely, uh, he has a tone poem called Africa and his ballet Saji is, is really uh, brilliant. An African story portrayed there. Two really great motherland themed works. But I don't consider this the center of what Juneteenth is and um, how it should be celebrated through our art form. When we start approximating Western classical music to Juneteenth, just because the composer of the music is black, it's really easy for us to forget that there's work to do toward our broader cultural liberation. We have to understand that the experiment of America is still running and it's still controlling many of us within it in various ways. I'm going to uh, repeat myself, the music of Still and Price and all the others, Chevaliers, uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, you name them, all of it's incredible stuff. But I think we have to consider what the status quo of classical music is and how each of us perpetuates it by censuring dead composers, even composers who were black. I like to think of a classical music ecosystem where today's living composers take the front seat, where today's conversations and where today's dialogues meet this thing called classical music. Uh, I, I, I envision this ecosystem where classical music can lead the charge to broader thinking and ultimately liberation for black people. And not just that, the way that classical music can help people overcome um, homophobia and femophobia and those sorts of things like uh, Terrence Blanchard was talking about when he was on Triloquy, the way that we can really challenge capitalism through classical music. But we can only do that by centering the way that today's composers and today's music creators are engaging that through music. I think Abel Seloshue does a really great job of inspiring thought toward this reality because everything about his presentation points back to his cultural roots, which are ultimately also some of the cultural roots of American descendants of enslaved Africans. In our conversation, uh, we talk about this, we get uh, to uh, talk about his process and some of his travels, we get stories uh, from his home in South Africa and much more. So I'm just really, really stoked and excited and grateful uh, to be able to uh, share uh, that dialogue with you. I know that was probably uh, a mouthful, a lot of uh, <laughs> stammering and, and just sort of soapboxing on my end. It's 6 a.m. here in Dallas in this hotel. So if I'm not making sense, please forgive me. But at the end of the day, I hope that you can just really think about what the status quo of classical music is. The way we perpetuate Eurocentricity in our use of that phrase, classical music, and the way that Eurocentric orchestral and instrumental sounds 
are utilized by black composers past and present will not liberate or elevate our existence. These are modes of survival under a capitalist colonial ecosystem, uh, both musically and otherwise. So just just think about that. Think about the, the status quo of classical music and how we aren't moving away from it in the way that we think about black composers, the way that we perpetuate um, certain status quo, the way that we program. It's, it's a heavy, it's a deep conversation, but it's a conversation that I think uh, we need to be having more and more toward this ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music and really just uh, disrupting everything about classical music. I, I think it's it's all possible if we can just think about things in that way. Uh, so huge thanks to everyone over at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra for helping me get this interview in the books. And thanks again to you for listening today. Here's a little music as performed by Abel Silas Shoy to get us into my conversation with him. Hope you all enjoy. Kimosaria Toranti Pacabo Hale Utretica Matrica as a feeling, Yeah, I think I'm slowly um, getting to grips with its people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the orchestra is is really friendly people, but they're from everywhere mm-hmm. in, in in the country. So um, often I've spent quite a lot of time downtown, which I've realized in the U.S. actually people don't hang out downtown. Not here in St. Paul. Anyway. No, not in St. Paul. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm you know I'm starting to to look for that field. I'm I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, you know, the weather reminds me of Manchester very much, you know, when okay. it rains. It's it's pretty much like the same kind of, you know, calm weather in that sense. Um but um yeah, I'm 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 happy here. I think I'm I'm starting to to look for what feels like a home. So I'm gonna sure. be coming back for quite a bit of uh, projects here. So, yeah. and, and we're so excited to have you returning again and again and again. Yeah. Your yeah. debut with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra was a standout, to say the very uh, least. Everyone was talking about it. People, you know, in the audience were, you know, talking to their friends. It really was just an, an incredible event. I wonder um, how you received that. What do you think that says about what you bring to a place like St. Paul? Well, you know, it's it's more what I came here to bring out hmm. more like I think I think everybody um has an improvisational spirit has a reflective spirit has a a place for prayer inside you know and I think that's what the concert allowed you know uh, it's not to do necessarily with religion but it's about to do with this universal 
need to have faith in the next moment. Mm. And so that was quite quite important to to bring out of the audience, you know, this feeling of we are gathered here as a as people rather than the artists and the audience. So we just dissolved that boundary between us and it became, you know, for the people in the room. Uh, I always say had one person not been there, the music would have been totally different. Wow. So that's that's how I see it, you know, to bring out this sense of gathering for everybody. Was improvisation always a part of your practice? Um, yeah, from childhood. From childhood, you know, growing up in in South Africa in Civil Gang with with my brother, we kind of discovered um classical music and these instruments almost by mistake, you know, through an mm. outreach program. And to us it looked like tools. It didn't look like um a genre. It looked like something mm. that you could throw your spirit into. So we played all kinds of music already on it. You know, and we we came from we came up from a very choral perspective. You know, everybody was always singing at home. And so just easily translating that language, we'd write down hymns, we would, you know, learn hymns by ear and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. I wonder if you'll say more to this idea of uh, connecting the singing tradition mm -hmm. to playing an instrument. We're always telling, especially those of us who are classically trained, so-called classically trained, mm -hmm. sing with your instrument, you yeah. know, really bring it out. Yeah. For you, that just seems like a, a natural part of how you learn to play the cello. Well, it's 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 a, it's a challenge that uh, we should all take on for the rest of our lives, really, mm -hmm. you know, to to be, everything is a, is a translation of the voice. If you think about it, even... Rhythm is a translation of of language. You know, when I start to speak my language, I can hear rhythm. Mm. You know, you you could almost translate that into song if you wanted to. So, we need to see life in its most natural form, starting from the voice, and then, and then when you play your own instrument, you know, even our our classical teachers always say that if you can't play it, you need to sing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it goes all the way to jazz music. You know, when you learn transcriptions or you try to be inspired by other people. You learn their solos by singing them first, and yeah. then you play them. You yeah. know, so the voice it seems for me to be the most natural place to start from, even if you don't call yourself a singer. Just start that way and feed your curiosities. How did you uh, traverse doing music as something you loved into doing something that pays your bills, that allows oh. you to travel the world? What was that transition? Yeah, like? that that transition was a crazy one. It was the realization came late. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like, I was so crazy about, you know, making music as a as a child until somebody says, do you know that this is your your way out, you know, mm. of the township or your way out of, of poverty? And and I didn't think of it that way. I just thought this is something that I do. Um, and I think I have tried to keep that spirit um, for as long as I can, as much as I can. Um and I'm so grateful that I, I don't have to do anything else. And all I have to do is is express myself mm -hmm. and I'm able to survive. You know, of course, there were hard times where, you know, I was doing that at full capacity and not getting the rewards of that. That sure. that, that happened uh, like every other musician. Uh, but it's uh, important to, to realize what society needs, you know, uh, the same as a business. Think of it sure. like that. You know, what what do they need? What does everybody need in order to to be well? Um, and I think then uh, gifting that to the world, the world gifts you back a way of living. So that that makes you know complete sense to me. I wonder how you maintain that wellness for yourself, considering you're in and out of airports. Mm. And I can't imagine what it's like to travel with an instrument mm. the size of a cello, the mm. logistics of that. I don't even want to think about. But, yeah. when, but when you get to the stage, there's so much joy. There's so much happiness. Where do mm. you draw that from? Uh, this is a uh, such a great question uh, because... 
um, different places provide you with with different spirits, mm-hmm. and and you have to be aware enough to be able to feed on that. So it's all about people constantly. Mm-hmm. People either take energy or give you energy. Yeah, you know. So I look for those that give me energy sure. constantly. I'm like, who's here to feed me that I also can feed, and then. Also, I have my people at home that I'm always in touch with, you know. So if I've had a long day, uh, it's so important to to pick up the phone and call somebody who will always be on the other side yeah. of the line to say, hey, uh, I'm sitting in a hotel room. <laughs> you know, what are you thinking about? Oh, I'm thinking about this. And then your imagination goes. And also, it's important to enjoy one's company. Uh, but it's also just important to just be so curious. Mm-hmm. You know, curiosity trumps everything. So wherever you go, you should always be asking questions and then people will will kind of open their arms to you in that sense. Wow, wow. I want to go back to uh, your debut with the SPCO. Not only was this an event that people uh, celebrated for what it was, it was also used as a starting point of dialogue for many people about broadening what an orchestral experience is, what the mm-hmm. repertoire is. I wonder what you think about your musical performance playing a role in some of those broader conversations, not just art, but art that can lead to changes in administration or changes in the way we, you know, approach this entire art form altogether. Yeah. I mean, uh, where do I start? I mean, ideas only come when we gather. Mm. That's literally, you know, you can be alone and you can have some amazing ideas, but for them to come to life, you have to actually, be in connection and interaction with the world. So what I find is that, you know, I, maybe I'm repeating myself, but it's just the spirit of looking for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and and then things start to happen, you know, and, and making people, I want classical music to be this environment where anybody can walk into, um, anybody can have something that they love within this place and something that they don't know about, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And this feeling for me is so paramount to every environment that I enter. That's what I want to affect. Um, so when we play African music next to classical music, we have to ask ourselves, is there a thread that binds these things together? And that's my job to explain that and to make that scene. And I want African people to start showing up, listening to Beethoven and listening to Tuareg music at mm-hmm. the same time. Wow. Which I think I think is is uh, what the world is becoming because we suddenly have so much access to everything and suddenly our influences are not forced upon us. We have to choose our influences. Sure. You know, we have this freedom, especially in the West. People have the freedom to choose their influences to say, that's what I'll listen to. That's what I'll I'll go to. So I think to have that in, in, in one space is very beautiful. And I I want people to always gather because I think that's where the power is really for everything from politics to art. Yeah. You know, when you talk about weaving together the African music with the Beethoven, I think about that there are so many of us who just reject the tradition, reject the canon. You know, we don't need to spend any more time with Beethoven. Mm. Why is it important for you to include the the so-called canon in your approach to making music? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been, I grew up with this thing for such a long time. So it was, for me, it was never this, you know, Oh, that's Bach, and to to me as an individual, oh, that's that's you know Sangoma music, traditional healing music. Mm-hmm. It was always like, oh, these are sonic spaces. You know, that's how I kind of describe these like sonic spaces that get communicated around the world. You know, like so so 
I became interested in, it sounds a bit abstract, but the feeling of vibrations, you know, mm. different musics allow you different vibrations. In classical music, you'll find the softest sounds that you can ever find in, in most music. Mm. Um, uh, in, uh, in African music, you, you'll find the most circular, you know, things that make you, uh, put you in, a, in an extremely meditative state. So all of these things for me are, are no longer labels of genre. I just, what do I need to prescribe today for myself or for my audience? Mm -hmm. Do I need to prescribe, you know, a low vibration of, of contemplation? Or do I need to uh, bring a feeling of celebration or of moving your body? You know, what is that? And how do I affect that into people? And that goes across genres. Yeah, yeah, because we're talking about so much more than just changing the repertoire. You get people, as you already spoke to, on their feet, get people singing, get, mm -hmm. get people dancing. Mm -hmm. There's so much of this tradition uh, that teaches us that showing respect is sitting completely still and yeah. quiet and, <laughs> and, and waiting to the end. Yeah. Why, why is it? I wonder if you could speak more to why it's so important to get people actually involved with the performance. You know, um, music is a reflection of the people that are sitting watching it, you mm. know, and, and if music is this reflection of you and you hear it, and if you go by that definition, you should start reflecting the music, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm so happy for people to react the way they do in, in concerts. Um, I love, especially playing classical music for young people, you know, it's, it's kind of a thing that, that, you know, I used to think, oh, there's, there won't be enough attention span. After a while of listening to this quiet sure. music, they'll, they'll start talking amongst themselves. I used to be so scared of that. And now it's a matter of, of courage and storytelling, you know. So sometimes you create a bigger silence and, and you wait for them to listen mm. and they start listening. And suddenly you're in a, in a club underground somewhere and there's, 800 to 1,000 people extremely quiet and listening, you know. And then you give them the reward of rhythmic music. And then sure. so and, and so the storytelling goes, you know. So I, I really think that's um, the future, that, that classical music has to live within other genres and for, in order for it to survive, really. Are you confident in that future considering the fact that you know, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in many ways is an outlier in the way that, you know, you come in and really engage audiences. In my experience, most orchestral experiences are not that. Are we moving in the right direction? We are 100% moving in the right direction. I Well, in, in my circle where I see sure. myself, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I feel, you know, people are really keen to, to listen anew. Um, hmm. But... I have to say that this movement or this idea of classical music living within other realms needs leaders. You know, it needs people who, who will foster it and who will actually do the research of why things, you know, connect, you know, not just to do it, but to actually explore why these sonic spaces have a connection to each other. And if we can live in that curiosity, you know, then we are really in the right direction and it will start really spreading to other places in the most natural way. Mm. I think the resistance is, is that, oh, the, the, you know, the, it's, it's such opposites of sounds, but it actually isn't. We just need to find there are different pieces that, that match African pieces, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are different pieces that match other genres of, 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 of music.
Yeah. And, you know, speaking of African music in Africa, it's it's uh, not very often that I get to engage someone with actual connections to yeah. <laughs> the, the motherland, you know, seeing the images and watching your performances and uh, just noticing how Afro forward you are. You don't come out in a, a tuxedo and tails. You know, you're very much <laughs> celebrating your Africanness, and that's something that really resonates with me. Yeah. I, I wonder why that's important for you to not you, to not come out in the tuxedo, to not come out simply in all black, mm, but really mm. celebrating, you know, yeah. who you are and where you come from. I mean, identity is so important. Um, identity is a huge part, especially you know when I'm working, especially in the West you know, playing for in concert halls and in, in all these places, uh, the prominent identity is the audiences and mm -hmm. not mine. Sure. So so this is my place to say, actually, I am introducing an identity to you that we are going to normalize within the space. Um, by the way I speak, by the way I dress, by the way I walk, uh, and by the way I play. So it's it's super important for me to to show who I am and who I celebrate, you know, and everywhere I go, I get different gifts of clothing from different people, you know, you know, that what I wore in the last concert was actually from a talking drum player who I met in the last project. Oh, wow. Masamba Diop. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredible. So he was like, here's, here's a clothing from my place, you know, and, um, uh, some other people have given me different, you know, cloths that I, that I really admire. So I'm always interested in that kind of world of, of, kind of representing um, the African diaspora at large in that sense, yeah. I'm unprepared. I should have had a cloth to gift you yes! today, the next time. Next time. I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, when you talk about identity, I think about all of the work uh, that the SPCO and many orchestras across the country have done in engaging things like DEI, really having conversations about diversity and, and applying those conversations. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, considering you know your global perspective as a performer, mm -hmm. are those conversations the same in other places? Is there anything unique about the idea of identity and music as it exists uh, in, in here in, in in the U.S. and the way you've engaged, mm. you know, I'm I'm getting to grips with the U.S. Hmm. It's, it's taking me a bit of time. <laughs> I have to say, we're in a quiet taste. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting to grips, man. Uh, it's 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 really interesting. I think, um, you know, you over such a long time, you have a huge group of displaced people, you know, and finding their own identity. And, and that's extremely strong everywhere I go. Mm. Uh, I hear it and I feel it and I, and I, and I look for it. Uh, so I think the conversation here is how can we teach, mm. you know? Um, and I, that's my journey. So everywhere I go, I say, how can I teach and how can I learn? So, you know, we, we talk a lot on our journeys with Jonathan a lot about, you know, who lives here? That, mm -hmm. That's always my question. Who lives here? Who's around here? Who's downtown? Oh, who's in the suburbs? You mm -hmm. know, where, where, you know, because when I think about South Africa, even its own layout, you know, uh, in the apartheid days, we had this, you know, in the middle, the central business district and the outer layer was the suburbs. And mm -hmm. then in between, absolutely nothing. And then on the outer, outer layer was the townships where it was actually planned that there would be no access to, to being able to live uh, you know, and be a part of the economy and be a part of the the fast moving world. And we'd be like in our own world. Mm -hmm. And those places still exist. It's still built like that. And we're trying to create, 
you know, a kind of life in the township where there's buzzing opportunity, there's progress, uh, there's there's new discoveries, and everybody's really trying to eradicate this thing, but it takes a long time. Mm. So, you know, I ask about those kind of things, who lives here? I think that's quite important for me. And I can see that people are, are very awake about that. And and especially the orchestra are quite keen to to open up and, and talk about these things. And it's a very conversational orchestra, which is extremely unusual. You know, everybody talks. And I think the more we get to know each other, the more we'll speak about the type of things we're talking about today. So to say more about why that's important, there are many people who would never think about a conversation happening within a rehearsal among mm. all the musicians. We're just mm. taught about this tiered thing where the conductor mm. is at the front and calls all the shots and yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Hierarchy is, is seems to have been an extremely important thing in classical music. And that's actually starting to dissolve quite a bit, you mm. know. Um, and also my system is that, yes, there's a leader, uh, but yes, there's a community. And when the community speaks, you listen, mm. right? And if, if the people are not happy, then then you have nobody to lead, <laughs> you know. So that's quite important in, in that sense that that we open this dialogue. And it's it's unusual because, you know, the, luckily the music requires this. The, sure. mus- the music that we play requires this. So one of the processes that we went through, I'll tell you now, We I wrote a piece like the night before, the Tanzanian Blue, mm. right? And I had decided from a long way away that I will bring this piece and they'll see it when they see it. And they will learn it by ear, right? And that never happens in orchestra. Mm-hmm. And that opened a huge dialogue between ourselves about expression, about listening, about when it's whose turn. And and the type of attentiveness that was there was incredible. And I had never seen it anywhere else in orchestras. And people were all, almost coming up with their own material in some in some places. And there was this license of freedom and voice. And that's very unusual. And so uh, I'm looking to do that with, with many orchestras to, to give this. And this is the gift that I have with, you know, the incredible SPCO. You know, uh, they're, they're making incredible music uh, by listening and by being, you know, uh, responsive. What would you say to people who would say to you, well, it's one thing to create that sort of environment with the SPCO. It's a smaller group. It's very intimate. You can't possibly do that with a 100-piece symphony orchestra. What do you, what do you say to those folks? Oh, man. I say Africa. <laughs> I say communities. Like, look at how, you know, other people gather. And I, th- I think that's one thing to learn, actually. You know, I'm, I ask myself about that often, you know, look, how do people gather in different places? What is the decorum? You know, mm. who speaks first? You know, does, does, does the last person get to speak or not? You know, and I think there are places where people are allowed full expression within hundreds of people. And I think that's incredible without losing control, mm-hmm. which I think is incredible. Um, I, te- I definitely think it's possible within an orchestra. But most of all, we do need leaders, leaders mm. that think in this way, leaders that are so aware of the people around them, leaders that are sensitive to styles, leaders that are um, ready to listen to the people that are speaking at them. So that's that's super important. So for all of the leaders listening right now, mm-hmm. what would you say should be their step one right now toward moving their organization, their musical community in a more inclusive direction? Yeah, so so we we have see see the light in other people. Hmm. So so that's that's so important. See like see see the potential in everybody around you, and then you know everybody's strengths, and then on top of that, make amazing relationships. 
with with different people. You know, I know that, uh, you know, for instance, in, a, in an orchestral rehearsal, when everybody's got their heads down and they're, they're kind of resistant, I know definitely within this group, there's one person I can look at and say, can I trust you to to affect change wherever you are? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's leadership. That relationship is very strong. And I look at that person, I say, affect change wherever you are. I look at another person and before you know it, everybody's is back, you know? So I think that's that's very important for leaders to be able to do. How can people learn more about you, support your work and keep up with all of your here's and theirs? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm always traveling, I'm, you know, on my website, there all my dates of, of where I am in the world uh, are always up on com, And uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, again, my name, Abel Silautre. Uh And also I have a, an album out, which is um, a, a kind of offering uh, that's asking about the question of home. The album is called Where is Home? And it goes through the different styles of South African music, but also classical music. I play a little of Baroque in there and quite a lot of improvisation and extremely exciting rhythmic music. So, yeah. Beautiful. Speaking of home, answering that question, where is home? Mm. Uh, when I think about expanding the canon, I think about how we need to learn what is so-called canon in other parts of the world. I wonder if you could uh, name, if you could pinpoint one thing, what's an important or really significant uh, song from your home or melody from your home that we need to consider if we want to think about expanding the canon and, you know, highlighting culture that's different from ours, but important in other places? Yeah. Um, A melody. Sure. A melody that's important at home. At this moment in time, in this current state, we have a song in South Africa that says, what did we do? Senzenina. It goes, senzenina, 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 senzenina. And it's about a lot of people singing together, asking this question of healing. What have we done? And I think that we need to ask this question. We need to have a, a reflective society. So often, like we have these things that, that you know, activate these kind of thoughts to ask these questions. So, senzenina, what did we do and what should we do? Senzenina.
Senze Ni Na as performed by the Cape Town Youth Choir featuring Monday Mdingi there getting us into the conversation. Uh, we heard Abel Seloshue featured with the Manchester Collective uh, in a tune called Siroko Cabo Haleng. So really uh, grateful again to have that dialogue. I hope that you uh, got something out of that and I hope that it helped you think about uh, this idea of a decolonized musical ecosystem uh, a, a little more, you know, sounds and aesthetics and practices that aren't rooted in what we were taught as classical music, but are rooted in what an expanded view of classical music is. Huge shout out and thanks once again to Abel Siloshue for that incredible dialogue. I know it was a shorter one, but uh, one that I was uh, very glad to present. All right, well, we are uh, here toward the end, and there's one subject that I wanted to make sure that I brought to the front. I'm reading uh, from the New York Times here. The headline is, the United States orchestras gradually diversify, but are slow to hire black musicians. Uh, it says here, the number of Asian and Latino players has risen over the past decade, according to a new report, but black musicians are still scarce, especially at large orchestras. I think there's a lot to unpack here. I hope that you will go find that New York Times article and and, and take a look. But, you know, my immediate takeaways um, root back sort of to what I was talking about with Juneteenth and decolonized thinking. So let's think about the, the history of the United States. We have people who came here and, uh, and executed a genocide against millions of indigenous communities. And I think it's important even there to remember the fact that this wasn't just one people or one people group that were completely eradicated. These were nations of different people, different cultures, different music that were completely wiped away so that uh, Africans could be brought in as slaves to do the work of codifying and building the financial uh, foundation of the United States that made so many things possible, including immigration from other parts of the world, the, the, the integration of other cultures and other um, experiences into these so-called United States. So why do I mention that? I mention that because when it comes to indigenous people and to American descendants of enslaved Africans, there is a very, very unique set of circumstances that are there that I don't think uh, are often thought about or, or or really foregrounded when we talk about diversifying classical music or even decolonizing classical music. Black and indigenous people have a very specific set of circumstances here in the United States. So to me, it's no surprise that other people groups from other parts of the world are able to come to the United States and to do things like enter orchestras uh, to, to a, a large degree or have a lot of representation in orchestras. I mean, think about uh, folks from uh, China and Japan here in the United States and their relationship uh, with orchestral music. They they are well represented in the field. And as this uh, uh, report from the New York Times says, uh, to a degree, so are um, uh, people uh, from the Latine diaspora. Well, that isn't quite the case for Black people because so many of us are not yet uh, six or seven generations away from the plantation. I recently uh, lost my grandmother. I, I think I've talked about it here on Triloquy, but she was born a sharecropper, which, and we can split hairs, but in essence, she was born into a certain type of slavery. And I knew her, you know, 
all my life. She she passed away uh, about six weeks ago. You know, so under those circumstances, what could she have passed on to my parents and what could my parents have passed on to me to, you know, help me become the concert master of insert orchestra? And not that that's something that I aspire to, because I think we also have to challenge the white supremacy of our aspirations and why we have certain goals and certain things that uh, we, we want to do with our lives. But anyway, long, long story short, the fact that um, orchestras are becoming more and more diverse and black people are being left behind is yet another symptom of America's uh, just foundational sin, of, of America's foundational problem, the genocide against indigenous people and the erasure of culture and a way forward for black folks. Now, that is not to say that you know any of us are some sort of victim or anything. There are a lot of black people. There are a lot of uh, American descendants of enslaved Africans who have done very well for themselves, certainly in music, you know, both classical and otherwise. But that does not account for the whole. That does not account for the broader sense of this conversation and an opportunity for all folks, all black people, to really pick themselves up and to have a shot at this so-called American dream. So, you know, as we as we move forward, I'm keeping it short this week because I'm late and I got to get to these readings. But as we move forward, I hope that uh, we'll continue uh, not only to think about the specificity of blackness in this conversation of so-called classical music, but the ways in which the uniqueness of blackness is marginalized through this BIPOC lens. I, I love all of my BIPOC people, you know, all people of color and white folks. We need to stand together to, to change this world. But viewing issues in classical music strictly through a BIPOC lens marginalizes so many people, namely indigenous and black people. Uh, so I hope that this report from the New York Times helps people think about that a little bit more, shed light on the larger issue of race in the United States, what it means to be BIPOC versus what it means to not be black. That is something that we need to talk about more, something that's always at play. You know, there are many critical race theorists who talk about when immigrants come to the United States, they fully understand the pecking order. They understand what is at the top and who is at the top and who isn't and what they need to aspire to aesthetically when it comes to their aspirations, when it comes to the way that they dress, even think about the idea of professionalism, all of those things point to anti-blackness. And the and the the sooner that we can really understand and apply that to classical music, I believe the sooner that uh, we have a shot in actually creating a decolonized, even liberated ecosystem. Thanks again so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support through the uh, transition uh, of this show here into season five. And I will talk to y'all again next week. Cheers. Mm -hmm.